We continue today in a study of Nehemiah, so take your Bible and turn to Nehemiah chapter 10. If you're joining us at home or online, uh, we've been studying through the book of Nehemiah, and we preceded that with a study through the book of Esther, and then before that, Ezra. And uh, we're coming to a time of the end of the history of the nation of Israel, and there are some uh, just some key things out of the, uh, the last several chapters of the book of Nehemiah. So, last week we started, it was part one. We talked about the need for revival, the fact that we can learn a great deal from the nation of Israel. They were experiencing a revival because they had called for the, uh, the reading of the Word, the preaching of the Word, the explanation of the Word. And they were responding to that. And if you were here, you'll remember. If you weren't, let me share with you that um, as we began reading in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, there are 84 names. And the thing that struck me was the fact that they were all men. And I made the point last week, it was the men, and it should always be the men who take the lead in helping their families and their church, first individually, of course, to respond to the reading and the preaching of God's Word and uh, to bring in true revival. That's what we're praying for here at Heritage and in our churches, not only in this nation but around the world. We need spiritual awakening in our own nation, and the place to start is right here. Revival in the local church. So with that, I'll I'll allow you to remain seated. Um, We've been standing a bit, and we're going to start reading with verse 28. That's where we left off, and we're going to find that while we'll remind ourselves of the the call to be separate from the nations, from the world, uh, we'll come back to the last two reforms, specifically that uh, Nehemiah was... um, Uh, that the people were really calling for among the nation of Israel. So, chapter 10, verse 28, follow along. This is a summary uh, of what was happening. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, the families joined in. Their daughters and all who had knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, the nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring in goods, this is where we'll pick it up today primarily, or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year. This is another kind of Sabbath. The seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give a year, yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. 
for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons. We're going to hear about this later in the New Testament. The appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel for all the work of the house of our Lord. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to the Father's houses at the appointed time, year by year, to burn on the altar of our God as it is written in the law. The wood was important so that the flame would never go out in the altar. We obligate ourselves, verse 35, to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the tithes shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Father, these words that were written down for us some 2,500 years ago seem a little bit out of step with the way that our lives sometimes, and obviously and especially our culture, seem to be. But Father, they speak to us, and they tell us about priorities, about first fruits, about things that need to be given to you, starting with our own lives and not just the leftovers. And so, Father, I pray that today as we walk through these words, we seek to apply them, that you would help us to be a a separated, a, a, a special and anointed people of God. Not that we are special in our being called by you, that's by grace, but Father, in the living out of that, we are called to follow you in all that we do. May it start with us as individuals, particularly the men, and may it filter down through our wives, through our families, all those, as you've said, who have wisdom and understanding, and help us to be people that are stamped with your image uh, to live out the life that you've called us to live in the midst of a very, very dark world to bring the light of the gospel to them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Just a reminder, Nehemiah's overarching concern for the nation of Israel, the image bearers of God, just like you and me, and yet Israel was tempted throughout their history to look to the nations 
around them. Rather than being image bearers of God, all too often they fell into being bearers of the image of the world around them. Now, just remember, let's go back and review a little bit in case you're a little bit fuzzy on your Old Testament history. God chose Abraham alone. From all of the nations, the people groups of the world, he established a covenant with Abraham and for his descendants to fulfill the promise that he had given to Adam and to Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And it would be through this special nation. Now, sometimes we forget this. But Paul, even in the book of Romans, talks about the advantage of the Jew. What, what advantage has the Jew? And he answers his own question in Romans 3. He says, great in every respect. And let me jump again to Romans chapter 9 to show you some of the special covenant relationship that the Jews had with God. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption. They were first to be adopted. The glory, the covenants the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Paul ends his own words with a sincere amen. But isn't that true of us? Israel was a called-out nation. Promises were given. Israel was so blessed by God And we jump to the New Testament and we realize, isn't that what is true for us? That God has chosen us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let that soak in, believer. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Even as He chose us, that was the beginning, just like He chose Israel. In Him before the foundation of the world, but not just for privilege, also for a responsibility, so that we should be holy. What does that word holy mean? Remember, it means to be set apart and to be blameless before Him. We're called to be holy. First Peter says this, and basically it's just a quote out of Leviticus, as obedient children, that's who we are. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also shall be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, I never ask you to repeat with me, but I am for these words. That that last quote, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's his calling. But Israel forgot. Do we ever forget? Israel forgot that they were God's image bearers, and instead of being God's light to the nations, they joined in the very idolatry and the terrible actions that surround that that they were called out of. Instead of looking like God, They looked just like everyone around them. Now, let me say that and bring that up to the contemporary statement of that. Just instead of being looking like God, we sometimes look like 
everyone around us. So what did God do? Out of His love, get this, out of His love, He disciplined them by allowing foreign nations to defeat them and to make them slaves. And now God has brought them, according to His promise, out of that slavery and brought them back to the land. In the story of Ezra and then Esther and Nehemiah, the temple, the gates, the walls have been rebuilt. So everything's set. So what happens now? God calls them to revival. And we saw last week, we did, a, we did a, 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 almost the entire sermon was on rededication of our lives, and that's what happened to the nation of Israel. That's what we hope will happen to us. They were revived through the reading of the Word, the Law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, and they realized that they were called to look like God. And they realized how much they didn't look like God, and they began to weep, and they began to cry out to God in a total rededication of their lives. Now, last week, I overlaid that on us. We are to look day by day, week by week, at what God has called us to be. We are to freely confess our sins before God, knowing that He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That doesn't mean getting saved all over again. That means daily staying fresh with the things of God. So we looked last week, the first reform, and it was really more spelled out. It wasn't stated that this was a reform, but just as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, it was a huge reform. The men took on their God-assigned role as the head. And I'll just refer you back to last week's sermon, if that's a little bit shocking to you, in light of what the culture is saying today. But the men begin to realize their God-given assignment as the head of their homes and, and, and that they were to lead themselves, first of all, and then their wives, we saw it in verse 28, and then their children... And then their nation, which is a semblance of the church of Jesus Christ today, to call out to God, first of all, and here's the second reform, to be separate. Now, we have quoted this verse over and over again, and a lot of times what I do is I turn my attention over to our students, and those of you who are raising your children and especially as they get to be teenagers and you're wanting them to marry the right person. And this is an application, but it's not the only application. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's an everything kind of verse. We're called out to be separate, to be holy. That doesn't mean that we're better than everyone else around us. That doesn't mean that we are called not to associate with those who do not believe. Paul makes that very, very clear, but we are not to be unequally yoked with those who are not believers. And we had a little discussion about this in our ABF class today, just among others. We had a big discussion in our ABF class. That's that's always good, but we were talking about that. And the time to start, parents or grandparents, 
To feed this truth into your children and your grandchildren is not when they're 16 and they just discovered a boyfriend or a girlfriend at, at, at school and, and you ask them, is he, honey, is he or is she a believer? Well, I don't know. The time to start discussing this principle of not being unequally yoked is when they're babies and let them be raised with that. Again, not that not that they are better than, but they are called as followers of Christ to be separate unto the Lord. Is that clear? That is such an important thing. And so, and so Israel was being called back to that with men leading their families to be separated unto the Lord the first two components of real revival. Now, the third and the fourth are right here. They're on your notes and we'll, uh, your outline, and we'll go through these. Um, the third reform was this, rededicating ourselves to the priority of right worship. Here you got a sermon today. I'll, I'll give you the, the, the front end on worship and on giving. Two other components of real revival that came to, during Nehemiah's day to the nation of Israel and to the church. The priority of rededicating ourselves to right worship. Now, you heard what we said, and I'm going to have to do some explaining. So please listen carefully because all through this, they're talking about the Sabbath. And they're talking about holy days. And they're talking about new moons. These are all the festivals that were a part of the covenant that God made with Israel. And there are a lot of questions that New Testament believers have about this very thing. Now, again, men, the men led out in this. Specifically, here is what they said they would not do. They would not profane, they would not break the weekly Sabbath day. Let me define the Sabbath day. Friday evening to Saturday afternoon. If you're a note taker, write that down. What is the Sabbath that they were not to break? Friday evening to Saturday afternoon. All day Saturday was the Sabbath day. Why? Because God wanted his people to remember, to observe, that's what it means, the Sabbath day, and to keep it holy. What does holy mean? Separate. God rested from his labor on the seventh day, and so should they. Well, let me just ask you a couple of questions, see what you think. Did God rest on the Sabbath day, the seventh day, because he was tired? What do you think? You th do you think he rested because he needed a break? Man, after all that work? Well, come on. It was only six days. Or maybe if you take the view that it was millions and billions of years, that might, well, yeah, he might be tired after that. The concept of rest means that God had completed his planned out task. 
his project. It took him six literal days, 24-hour periods of time, for him to complete his project, and then he ceased from his labor. Now, this was an incredibly important thing for the Jews. Let me give you just, this is all the same passage of Scripture. I've just got it broken down into three slides for ease of reading, okay? Let's see what God says in Exodus chapter 20 in verses 8 through 11. Remember, observe, by the way, this doesn't just mean, oh, oh yeah, oh, yeah, Saturday, I should have set my alarm. It means to observe it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day, Saturday, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Let's go on. On it you shall do no work. All right? Don't do any work. Or your son or your daughter. Look how comprehensive this is. Or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock. You got to keep your animals from working. Get that hamster off the wheel. I, I don't know how they flesh this out. I, you know, and I've, I've got some really interesting illustrations of this. But that's what it says. Or your livestock. Or the sojourner who is within your gates. Doesn't matter if he's a Jew or not. If he's in your town, he does no work. Let's go to the third slide about this. Why? Because here's, here's the thing again. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all that is within them. Six days. He's God. He can do it. And rested on the seventh day, ceased from his activity. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It was designed, the Sabbath day, for man as a day of rest and reverence for the Creator. It was designed for the people of Israel to focus on Him rather than their daily responsibilities. Now, just a hint, and we're not going to get a lot into this, but you've got to go to the book of Hebrews for this. It also foreshadowed something, remember? The Old Testament, uh, these kinds of pictures, they always foreshadow something, and it was foreshadowing the Sabbath rest of our salvation in Jesus Christ. It was ordained to be a day of blessing, but man quickly turned it into a day of burden by adding many detailed regulations. I looked at I didn't realize this, this existed. It exists today for Orthodox Jews. And they, they have written, rabbis have written an application for this. There are 39 different categories of things that you cannot, not you, that Jews today can't do on the Sabbath, okay? 
And it's just amazing. 30, and then in each category, there are at least 30 different applications of those things. So you've got 1,500 things. This is for the Orthodox Jew today that if you're an Orthodox Jew, you cannot do. Do you see why I said that what God created for a day of rest and reflection and worship became and has become a day of burden? Let me give you a couple of examples. I wrote down just a couple. For example, you, there, there is a category about burning. Burning. Well, that doesn't mean that if you got a pile of brush out back that you're ready to burn. Up, oh, can't do it on the Sabbath, on Saturday. Forget it. You can't do that. It means burning. That means that if you got up this morning and you're an Orthodox Jew and you got up this morning and you put toast in the toaster oven, I, I'm serious. You can't flip the switch because it burns to make the toast. That's a law that you can't break or you're defiling and profaning the Sabbath day. You can't drive. Do you know why? Well, there are several things involved because there is a category of carrying. If you, if you carry anything outside your home other than the clothes you're wearing, that's breaking the Sabbath. You can't carry your key, your car keys to your car. That's a violation of the Sabbath. But not only that, you can't turn on your car. Why? It violates the regulation of burning. Because you'll be starting the car, several of you are getting this. What? Yes, the gasoline is, is ignited and burns to drive your car. You can't do that. Now, don't laugh. There's a sincerity here to this strictness that sometimes I wish the people of God in this congregation would have. What they were trying to do is say, don't be distracted by the things you do all week long. But they made it into a burden. Now, I hope you noticed I slowed down when I read this and I read the entire thing. They also rededicated themselves to keep the Sabbath year. Wow. What's that? Every seven years, they could not plant crops. Do you understand how much faith that would take? How much you'd have to depend on God? Because you come up to, let's say that 2023 is the Sabbath year when you can't plant crops. That means that this year, you've got to plant enough and trust God for the rain and all of the rest of that to feed yourself and your family this year, next year when you don't plant crops, and the third year when you plant crops again, three years, when you would have to trust the Lord for the crops grown in one year to last for the three. Now, how are we to take this? Are we Sabbath keepers or Sabbath breakers? <laughs> I heard both. Please, please listen very carefully. 
Was the Sabbath commandment included in the Ten Commandments? Yes, it was the fourth commandment. So is it, as some say, binding on us today? Jews would say it is. Seventh-day Adventists would say that it is binding on us today, that we are Sabbath breakers for meeting here today. Seventh-day Baptists, have you ever heard of those? Yeah. There are Seventh-day Baptists who believe you need to, you need to meet on Saturday instead of Sunday. Now, it, it becomes very vague because if you believe that that's true, here, here's one of the dilemmas that you've got. If somehow the Sabbath is not somewhat different than the other commandments, he says six days shall you work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. That was yesterday, by the way. Sabbath, by definition, is Saturday. Holy to the Lord, whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Did any of you drive a car yesterday? Let me see your hands. Did any of you carry anything yesterday? Did any of you mow your yard yesterday? Or any of those other, then you're a Sabbath breaker. And if, if the law was true back then, which it was, if it is for us today, then only the Adventists or the Seventh-day Baptists or the Orthodox Jews get out of it as long as they didn't do any work. Have you ever wondered why the fourth commandment never once, never once is mentioned in the New Testament? All of the other commandments are restated, but the, seven, but the fourth commandment is never mentioned even once in the New Testament. There is never an exception for breaking any of the other commandments, is there ever a time that it's right to commit adultery? Did Jesus ever violate the Sabbath? Did he ever carry anything or do anything that the religious people thought was work on the Sabbath? The greatest disagreements that Jesus had, the greatest conflicts that he had were over the Sabbath. Jesus never one time said it's okay to violate any one of the other. It's okay to get a buy so that maybe one time you can worship another God or bow down to an idol or take the Lord's name in vain or, kids and parents, are you listening here? What's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. Is there ever a time, children, teenagers, please listen. Your parents are hoping you're listening. Is there ever a time when it's okay to disobey your parents? As long as you're in their home. Maybe even after that, sometimes. Do you see what I'm saying? The Sabbath was, and we find this out, if you do just, you got, you, we've got to think about these things because people will ask sometimes, well, why do you guys meet on Sunday? instead of Saturday. The Sabbath was an exclusive covenant sign between God and His people, the nation of Israel, set right in the middle 
of the table of the law given to Moses. Here's what he says. He's not including the church in this, but watch how specific this is. The Lord says, said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. That's all of the holidays called Sabbath or holy days. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations so that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Let's read on. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. This is even more specific. Observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign, a special sign forever between me and the people of Israel. That in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Again, that sign, the Sabbath rest, pointed to and was fulfilled, listen, was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Once Christ came as the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament types and shadows, believers are never again obligated And Christ's fulfillment of all of those types and shadows was not partial. And it wasn't temporary, but it was complete and eternal. When Jesus said, it is finished, he rested from his work of redemption. And that is why, well, I hope you're following this. That is why Paul, who was such a strict Pharisee when he realized What had come in Jesus Christ, fulfilling all the types and the shadows, that's why he would say to a church like us, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival. Wow, look at this. These are the exact categories spoken of in Nehemiah chapter 10. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. He did not say that about any of the other nine commandments. But the Sabbath commandment only. So, what's the upshot? A lot of explanation vitally important for us today. The upshot is that we worship on the Lord's Day. The day, Sunday, that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. Now, here's an interesting thing. It is never mandated, please hear this, never mandated that we worship on Sunday, but it is modeled It's never commanded, but it is, by example, commended. Think about it. After his resurrection, Jesus met with his disciples on what day? First day of the week, Sunday. By the way, it was Sunday night. For all of you who would really like to see Sunday night worship, 
there's your story right there. Not commanded, but commended, okay? And in fact, because uh, Thomas wasn't there on the first Sunday night, he missed meeting with God, meeting with Jesus, but he was there on the second Sunday night. But let's move on, okay? And the church throughout the New Testament regularly met together on Sunday, the Lord's Day. Again, we don't meet on Sunday because it's commanded, because we have to, but because it's been the practice of every Christian from the very beginning. No amens? Okay. So, is it wrong to meet on Saturday? Is it wrong to meet on Monday? Tuesday. You see, in a very real sense, what happened when Jesus came every day of the week became the Lord's day. Would you agree that every day is the Lord's day? We don't want it to be your day or the world's day. It is the Lord's day. Why? Because we're not to worship. Listen, listen. We are not to worship the Lord only one day out of seven, but every day. Now, I'll tell you, okay, for some of you, this may be, the, the gears may be turning. I'm trying to get a little audience read and see what's happening out there. But l- let me just say this. If, if the Apostle Paul, and you saw what he wrote a few minutes ago in Colossians, if he wanted to clear this up, he could have. Remember, we're never, ever, the fourth commandment is never mentioned. Except when Jesus walked through the fields and his disciples got the grain and they broke the Sabbath, those kinds of things. Or he healed. He worked on the Sabbath day. But if he wanted to clear it up, he could have. Really. All he'd have to do is just put the, keep the Sabbath. That's Saturday. But look what he said in Romans about the freedom, the liberty of conscience, about worship. He says this, one person esteems one day as better than the other. So, my friend, if if you happen to be visiting with us today and you're a Seventh-day Adventist, look, no condemnation. Meet them. You esteem that day better, Saturday. But don't violate the conscience of another brother or sister who likes to meet on Sunday. Okay? Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. I'm absolutely convinced that Paul could have cleared it up once for all by saying, If he really meant for us to be worshiping on the Sabbath, he could have said, Sabbath is a day of worship that you're not to violate. But he didn't. So what do we do on the Lord's Day? Let me just give you a couple of quick things that that I believe the New Testament reveals that we do on the Lord's Day. By the way, our time of worship, again, could be altered. Some cultures it is. It's it's, It's not convenient to meet on Sunday morning, so they choose another time or day of the week. And that's okay as long as their worship includes several things. It should include great gladness and rejoicing. And the psalmist said it like this. And do you believe this is true for right now, for today? Do you? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Do you believe that that should be done today? How about right here? Could it also be a day, as we talked about last week, for confession, for mourning, for lament over our sin? Absolutely. 
We saw that last week. But let me show you another thing, that, that the believers got together, and here are some of the things they did. These are modeled for us today so that we want to at least in part do some of the things that they do. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is the number one priority. That was number one on their list. And to the fellowship. That's why I always encourage you, and if you go through our new member class, guess what? It won't be mandated, but we really encourage you to be involved in a smaller group like the ABF, Adult Bible Fellowship, or Sunday School for our students and, and all of that. And that's the way we get into the fellowship of the church. We're, we're not fellowshipping right now. This is a time of focusing on the apostles' doctrine to the breaking of bread. That's the Lord's Supper. We take that monthly. It's, it's not mandated. We take it every month. Some churches do it every week. Some churches do it once a year. But our elders have said once a month, will it ever be different than that? Could be. We do that. And we devote ourselves to prayer. And, and something else, giving is a part of that. We haven't even gotten to giving yet. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What's the key to this? We've talked about this over and over and over. It's not the mechanics. It's not the mechanics. It's not you coming in at, what time does this worship service start? What? Tongue-in-cheek. It starts at 10.30. Uh, it, well, we begin our service at 10.30. And uh, so mechanics, these are the mechanics, the structure. We have a particular structure. It's not the structure that God wants. Structure is good. Everything needs to be done decently in order. But God always wants your heart. You know this guy that wrote, I, I, I downloaded this. You could have a copy of it. He even talks about the whole thing about turning on lights and switches and stuff like that is electronics. So if you met with a true Orthodox Jewish church, on if you were a Sabbath day observer, you would not even open your computer. There's a regulation against writing. Oh, wow, you couldn't even text somebody during the service. That would be different. Did those laughs come from people who just texted something? Yeah. Did you hear what the pastor said? No. I was asleep. Okay. Jesus always said, look, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. Now, it, was he negating the fact that murder is wrong? He was just saying, if that's all you've got is the outward structure it's not wrong, it's just incomplete. God's not just after the structure. Structure is good. He's after your heart. You know that. Joel, he said this. We preached through Joel, I don't know, several years ago. Rend your heart, not your garments. God's always after your heart. That's why you, you may balk at, at what Kevin DeYoung says in one of these quotes, but I love, I love right in the middle where he says, God gave us 
Sabbath, not the Sabbath, but Sabbath, a day of, of, of collecting together and remembering and, and worshiping. And I love this, as a gift. Here's the statement that I really love. It's an island of get-to in a sea of have-to. Now, if you feel like you have to come to church, should you? See, a lot of people would say that, uh, 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 okay, I don't, if I feel like I have to, then I, then I don't have to. The key is to get your heart to a place of not going to the have to, but I get to. I get to go to church, worship with the people of God around me. Duty is not wrong. It's just incomplete, just like don't murder. It's not wrong, it's just incomplete. Get to the heart. If you have hate in your heart, that's, that's, you're, you're murdering. You come to worship, you sit, you take notes, all that. That's good, that's duty. You should feel a sense of duty, I, I'm, I'm telling you. But it needs to move quickly to the light. Uh, so let's move to the second one. Uh, Oh, here's another great one. You know this, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Get together to stimulate one another to love and good works. But let's, let's move on to the, the, oh, no, I've got something else. This is really, really, I was studying this this last week. Forgot that I had this in here. And immediately this sense of uh, men leading and the sense of worshiping, I immediately thought of a picture, an illustration from Norman Rockwell. Now, how many of you, students, do you know who Norman Rockwell was? No. How many of you know who Norman Rockwell? Okay, several, several. I have loved forever. Look him up. He was America's illustrator, illustrated for forever for the Saturday Evening Post. And in 1959, he did an illustration called Easter Sunday Morning. And I thought about this, and I looked it up and found some things about it that I, that I, I thought, th- this is so fascinating. He wasn't a painter. He was an illustrator. He took life. He, 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 he taught about life in the 1950s and 60s through his art. He illustrated. So here's, what do you see here? Easter Sunday morning. You see uh, the mom. Look at, look at her, her attitude. I mean, just look at the tilt of her head. Look at the two girls, probably twins. I think they were uh, the same person that, that Rockwell modeled them after. Look at the tilt of their head. They're on their way to church. They're holding their Bible. It's a good thing. Now, look at the slacker dad. This is exactly not the kind of dad that Nehemiah is telling us about. And if you look at him, he sit, he's slumped down in the chair. Now look very, very closely. What, what's that young boy doing? Ah, you see a different thing going on. He's looking at his dad. You don't know. This is very interpretive. But if I'd been that little boy, I'd have been saying, I'd like to stay here with my dad. Reading the paper. Having a cup of coffee. Smoking a cigarette. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it, it, that looks like more fun than going to church, doesn't it? For that little boy. 
But then you begin to look more closely. Look at the picture now. Norman Rockwell, I asked Rocky about this. He's our resident painter, illustrator, all the rest of that. I asked him about this, and he looked it up, and he came back in my office. He said, Rockwell never did anything by coincidence. Look at the messed up hair of the slacker dad. You see it? That's not by accident. What color is he wearing? Uh Uh-huh. Rockwell is trying to get us to say something or see something that it's not just a casual thing. And that little boy and his, his wistful look toward his dad preaches a sermon of what's behind men who do not take the leadership in the church. But we better move quickly to the last point. Rededicating ourselves to the priority of right stewardship and the care of God's house. I've had various reactions when I talk about giving. And I don't talk about giving very much unless it, when it comes up. Remember one of the churches that I, 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 you know, through the years I've had people say, Preacher, you never talk about giving. Again, I do when it comes up, like here. But I had a guy that came, speaking of the Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, after a sermon that I preached in another church about giving. And he came up and he said, Preacher, seems like you're always talking about giving. Last sermon I heard was on giving. And I said, By the way, when was the last time you were here? I really did. He said, about a year ago. And I said, if you would come regularly for the the building up of the body of Christ in your own building up, you would realize that we do preach about a lot of other things other than giving. Literally. It made him so mad. We had a gravel parking lot, and he peeled out and left, you know, gravel flying. But it was just the truth. Now, you notice he said, we will not neglect the house of our Lord. They were talking about a physical temple. We don't have a physical temple today. Individually and corporately, and that, by the way, that your body is plural. Your body. Do you not realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And I, I, hesit- I, I, I kind of slowed down a minute ago when we were talking about that. I, I don't know that I'd ever heard of the wood offering. But that shows you the detail to which God wanted us to go and to know what we needed to do. Now, some will say it's not about the money. If, if someone tells you it's not about the money, what's it about? The money. It's about the money just like that guy that I talked about a few minutes ago. Uh, And and Jesus uh, said it like this in Matthew 6. Again, it's a heart thing, but look what comes first. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. Get the treasure decided first, your heart will follow. And that's exactly the kind of thing that we need to go. Now, he talked about tithe. 
Is this a sermon about tithing? To the Old Testament Jew, they, and you noticed it there, they, talked, they gave several different tithes so that in, in the end result, the average Jew was giving about 30% of his income as a tithe. So if you want to be bound by the Old Testament tithe, then that's what you got to do. We don't believe in tithing. We believe in grace giving. And I've always said to people who, well, what, what, do you believe in tithing? I said, well, my goodness, that's Old Testament. We believe in grace giving. And shouldn't grace go beyond the Old Testament? Well, preacher, do you think we ought to tithe off the gross or the net? You ever heard that? You ever said that? And the, the comeback is, well, which do you want the Lord to bless, the gross or the net? And that whole thinking is just gross, okay? I, I, I tell you, you know, growing up in church and you hear, I call it boogeyman theology when it comes to uh, giving. And, every, you know, every year you have your stewardship campaign and everybody's supposed to sign up and all the rest of that, and you get several people to come up and give testimony, tithing testimonies about how that they didn't tithe, they stopped tithing, and God got the money anyway. Their car broke down, and guess how much it was? The exact amount of the tithe. I call that boogeyman theology. You know, the boogeyman is going to get you. No, no, no. Please don't fall into those things. How will we view this subject that what God wants for us today is stewardship? He owns it all. And we're but stewards of what he's... Has God blessed you abundantly? Then just be a good steward. The other day, went out to eat, and my grandson was, was paying the bill with his mom's credit card. And so I, it, was a, it was an interesting thing to, for me to, to talk to him about tipping 20%. And so he got it and did, the, did the, the tip with the 20%. But this week I was wondering about that. Do we sometimes fall into the trap of just tipping God? Rather than realizing that he really does own all of it? So let me give you about five things, six things that in the New Testament, here are some really good things about giving. First of all, it's always voluntary and it's always done with gratefulness. Each one must give give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Well, preacher, does that mean if I can't give it cheerfully that I won't, I don't have to give it? Where your treasure is, your heart will be. So just give and ask the Lord to help make your heart happy. Okay? Second thing. In the New Testament, it was always regular, systematic, and proportionate. On the first day of the week, hmm, Each of you is to put something aside, store it up, that he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. He didn't want the giving to get in the way of his preaching of the gospel, I guess. So he said, just save it up. By the way, people have said, well, you guys don't take up an offering. We have offering boxes in the back, and we hardly ever mention those. But God's people, I'm telling you, God's people here at Heritage, through covid people, other preachers will say, well, how did you guys do through COVID? I said, you know what? Our finances grew. 
because of the faithfulness of God's people who understand stewardship. It was always sacrificial in the, in the New Testament. In a severe, this is the Macedonian church, severe test of affliction, their abundance, watch this, of joy. They were cheerful givers and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Sacrificial. It's also comprehensive. And by this, I mean they gave themselves. They gave according to their means, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us. Please, take our money. We're begging you. And this, not as we expected, but they also gave themselves first to the Lord and then to the will of God to us. Wow. It was also not only to those who minister. We see this. It was given to the Levites, to the priest. One who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. And then those in need. So then. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, that's where it starts at home, and especially for the members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So members of HBC, I I just want to say to you, thank you, for the fact that I believe that you have learned how to be good stewards. We saw it tested during COVID, and you gave just like I've just shared with you from the New Testament, voluntarily, cheerfully, regularly, systematically, sacrificially, comprehensively. You have not been stingy, and I thank God for that. I'm going to close and pray after sharing with you the gospel. Um, I normally have two pages of notes when I get up here. I had three today. Got up this morning, I said, Lord, where can I chop any of this off? I, I just couldn't find any place. So you have been so patient to listen. Now, take it in. Respond to God's word as the Holy Spirit would direct you. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and this has all sounded kind of like, what's going on? What's that guy talking about? This has been for believers, and believers have taken it in. And if you've never come to a place in your life, young or old, where you've seen that you're a sinner before a holy God, You've you've never really understood the fact that Jesus died on the cross for sinners like us, even the worst of sinners. And that by turning away from sin, the Bible calls that repentance, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved. That's the ultimate goal of every service that we have is to encourage the saints, equip the saints, and to share the gospel so that those who do not know Christ could know him even today. Confess your sins, believe in Jesus, and you will be saved. Father, I thank you for uh, the reality of your word. Thank you for the, the patience and the understanding of your people. Thank you that uh, where the word has gone forth and the spirit has applied, that today we've learned how, how real revival can come to the church. 
very simple things, giving ourselves to you, seeing that you are the, the giver of every good gift and we are but stewards, giving back to you only what is yours, which is everything. And so we pray that it might be done. I pray for anyone who does not know Jesus that today would be the day of salvation, that they would trust Christ. So thank you, Lord, and as we leave this place today, I pray, and as we sing this last song, that we would give ourselves to you afresh and anew, walk out of here saying, I'm yours, Lord, do with me as you will to do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.